Isabella, what's your beef with the word reopening? I just don't know if you've ever actually been closed, I think, is the concern. And I know that that's what we are using in, you know, governmental language right now is the idea of reopening a city. But if we focus on the museum field, reopening implies that the only thing that matters is a site. I just think that, you know, the staff is also part of the museum experience. And there are people on staff right now who are working overtime, people who are writing and blogging and posting and creating digital content and serving over text teachers, just doing so many things to try and respond to these circumstances. And yet here we are harping on the fact that we need to get to reopening when we're actually still doing our missions. I think that's what bothers me. I just kind of feel for all the digital folks who in the time when they're so clearly needed and necessary in which the entire world has gone virtual, they might be getting the message that the museum is closed when they are bending over backwards. Well, it goes back to the, I, that idea of, well, we're closed to visitors right now. So there is just this constant reminder that any sort of online activity, virtual activity is, is not visitation. Yeah. I just hate you hate hearing it said out loud that way. <laughs> it makes, so, makes me so bummed out. There's just so many good experiences that I think people have had virtually during this time. I mean, maybe not everybody has, but I know I have. I mean, I've found virtual community to be very meaningful. And, uh, you know, there was just a, you know, a kind of message from Lonnie Bunch a few weeks ago that was about, we talked about this in our last podcast, where he said that, you know, we should be community centers, not the center of, center of communities or whatever. And yeah, last time I critiqued the phraseology that he had, but really, I mean, okay, so we can't be physical community centers, but can we still be virtual community centers? And I say, of course we can. You Wait know, a second. The, Sorry, go ahead. No, no. Probe at that. No. <laughs> so you're, but you're a, an exhibit designer. And, you know, I think about all these debates that I've seen online about, what's it, you know, okay, so you made a website. But that's, that's not an exhibit. What's your take on that? Oh, I mean, it's, they aren't. I mean, nothing drives me crazier than people saying they're going to make an exhibit online and they're frustrated because they can't find a simulacrum of a museum space to throw some pictures up in. Why can't I find a website that looks like a white box? <laughs> it's hilarious. And it, it's, it's just, we forget that like the medium of looking through a laptop will speak more volumes than the amount of shading that's in the corner of a fake gallery space, you know? 
so I don't know. I, I guess it just frustrates me because I love some of the, I, I, I find the potential of what can be done in museum spaces to be so exciting. You know, when people are talking about having really like amazing dialogue around historical concepts or, you know, visual thinking strategies and relating, you know, current events in some way to the past and helping people make better decisions today. All that stuff is medium agnostic to me. Yeah, it's, it isn't, it is enhanced by authentic objects and it's enhanced by interpersonal experience, but we don't have that in anything else right now. I mean, I can go to the park, but I don't, I don't get to go to a concert. So my expectations are totally different right now. And it feels like we're not responding to that change in expectation in some way when we talk about reopening and how important reopening is. So all these people are working so hard while the museum is quote unquote closed to yeah. provide these experiences and such you know, online and what if people, what if, what if the work that they're doing became so good that half the people who would typically visit <laughs> a museum could meet all their goals just by the hard work of those, those people you just named? Are you positing like a totally different org structure? I'm, or, I'm going radical museum futures here. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is I can actually give you an example. So the Philbrook um, Museum shifted and pivoted like pretty quickly, I think. And they took away a lot of the barriers to approvals for new projects in order to make it easier for their staff to try new ideas. And they've done... I listened to a podcast recently where the CEO, Scott Stolen was talking about having done like 250 programs since COVID started. So four months, you know, that's a pretty good average of potentially even, it doesn't even have to all be new, but that's still a lot of output for, for events, including a letter writing campaign to cats that live on the grounds of the museum <laughs> and it's been that. yeah and it's been really popular like people have because they're they're doing all these they're really expanding the boundaries of what falls under the category of a museum of art they're finding that some people really latch on to some of the programs that they do or some people are, are experiencing a lot of different offerings, they're probably gonna be forever changed as an organization in terms of how they program moving forward. So as what an exhibit designer, <laughs> <laughs> so as an exhibit designer, you wouldn't be horrified by the thought of less exhibits? No, I would not. Not at all. Not at all. Because I also think that the way we design exhibits is too much, just in general. 
I think that we are not, we don't leave enough space for modes of interpretation. And we also don't um, scaffold well enough often. You know, if you think of the way that you can lead people through an interview and kind of probe at the jobs that they want to get done and their goals in a, in a conversation, you want to do the same thing when you're talking about a difficult concept or a difficult time in history. And the exhibit doesn't talk back. The, the exhibit doesn't interrogate why you use the word that you use or where your references come from. It's static. So I, I think that we have a lot, there's a lot of extra literal room that we could create physically when we make exhibits and um, interpretively and like metaphorically for people to bring themselves and their experiences to what they see in a museum. And I just don't think it all has to live on site. I think that it can live in other places too. I wish that museums were more virtual, more like virtual communities to be totally honest. Now that that's what I've explored during this time period, regardless of like our decision to use reopening as a theme for a workshop doesn't make a judgment pro or con towards reopening. It says, this is the state of things and you are exactly. in this. So let's look at the actual context of visitor experience once people are there. So yes, maybe there are things that people will learn when they talk about visitor sentiment that will lead them back to the question of why did we open at all? But that is beside the point, right? Because <laughs> the, the decision, the die has been cast and there's still an opportunity once visitors are there or, or not coming to kind of use that to ask questions. So that's, that's kind of what you made, you made me think about. And I think the other thing that's worth pointing out is that sometimes it, it seems as if, you know, maybe, maybe museums are just like very navel gazing. Like we are very focused on our own change of state. <laughs> oh, now we're closed. Now we're reopened. Now we're opening, you know, and we're in as a field kind of an existential crisis. There's no doubt you can see that from the New York Times to the AAM message boards like people are talking about what museums are for and about and who they serve and how and how not all the time I think my willingness to to question the use of reopening is probably coming out of that constant churn of uh, revisiting meaning <laughs> that's happening within yeah. the field yeah, and you know that I'm particularly interested in what if thinking too. How can you how can you use thinking strategically about what might happen to help you prepare now? So like scenario planning type stuff that can come out of looking towards the future and not just in a way where you're trying to manage risk and avoid innovation, mm -hmm. right? Like where you're actually 
using thinking about what might happen to, I don't know, kind of create a cycle in which you are interrogating the present in order to move towards a better future. And that might not be efficient. We talked about that in the past, but, but it will certainly be re-energizing. You know, it's like a, it's a useful way to use your energy as opposed to something that just kind of spins in place, hmm. which I, I think we can get sucked into when we're too often just trying to solve the problem at hand. And we are not trying to anticipate future challenges. Like I was, I was thinking about the situation we're in and I was like, oh, I wonder if I can come up with some scenarios, you know, to, to think about this. And, you know, the simplest way to do scenarios is just do the two axes and you have one value that, that is on a spectrum on, on the Y and the X, right? So let's say for the X I did, I was thinking about time. So duration, pandemic goes on for five years, pandemic ends January, let's be honest, it's not earlier than that. Then the other one is, you know, the critical uncertainty for many people within the field, obviously you get more specific, would be how to bring in revenue. So the, the, the two sides are just, you figure out how to bring in revenue or you don't. And so then you have this world in which the potentially one quadrant, you, you don't figure out how to bring in revenue and the pandemic lasts for five years. What do you do, you know? Or you have the other side where you figure out how to bring in some revenue during the pandemic and it ends soon. And so you get through this thing, you weather it, you know, thank all the gods, but maybe you don't, what do you learn? What do you, what do you walk away with? What do you, what changes your organization? Or, or maybe it doesn't even, it's not just change for the sake of change. It's how do you actually grow? Like, how do you actually take this difficult time, this challenging, impossible situation that you and the people who work with you and the surroundings of your museum and the people you serve and turn it into something that can actually be beautiful, create birth, create growth, push your organization forward. It's not just about weathering the storm. Well, when you, when I think, when I visualize that grid, you know, you're talking about, and I'm going to, you're going to have to help me with this, I think. There's that upper right quadrant, which is like the pandemic isn't terribly long and you figured out some ways to generate some revenue. So that's like the, that's like the return to quote unquote normal. Let's just assume that there is a normal to return to. That's, you know, you return to old habits. Uh, yep. And in the lower, the opposite of that is the, the pandemic lasts for, you know, the rest of time. our lives. And, uh, oh my God, and we Kyle, I said five years, listen, five years. I'm going to go grim. You, oh boy. you okay. tempted me. All right. So, All right. so you, <laughs> pandemic lasts for the rest of our lives and we can't generate any revenue. And, and so that's not good either. But, but what's interesting is that those two things are kind of in a way, both of those are pretty bad, right? Like the return to the old habits is, 
running on fumes up there. Whereas like, what are the other two quadrants? Quadrants. There's like, there's, all right. So it lasts for uh, a, a little time. while or, okay, or last. Yeah. No, no, no. You, you, yeah, you have it in your head. Go ahead. Yeah. It lasts for a really long time and you do figure out how to make revenue. And then what's the other quadrant? The other one is it lasts a short time, but you don't figure out how to make revenue. Sorry, you do. You do figure you do. out how to make right. revenue. <laughs> okay. All right. No, let, let's just do two different versions of the return to normal. Okay. Well, the yeah. truth is, is but, that well, no, even Because that those, is two, two different versions of return to normal in a way. I disagree. Oh. I disagree. Because I think if you find, like Philbrook, that you're able to engage your community and, and, and what counts as revenue in my, in my chart or whatever could be very broad. It could be, I figure out how to fundraise better. Mm -hmm. I reach new audiences. We create products that create new revenue streams. We, we align ourselves with other organizations so we consolidate funding pools. We, you know, figure out how to share staff amongst another organization. I mean, it could be any number of things, right? It's not cost, cost savings as well as revenue in count. Ways. That counts. Right. Yes, that definitely counts. So maybe revenue was the wrong word, but I was trying to, you know, mm -hmm. you guys. Gotcha. But yeah, it's it's in the it's in thinking of the it's in thinking about the intricacies of both the kind of points of growth and rigidity that exist in all the different scenarios, all the four quadrants mm. that can be really interesting because then you can start to see that even though, you know, you might have these very different scenarios, there might be a commonality of what values or emphasis that would uh, be, enable you to be more safe in either of the situ in either of the scenarios, you know, so then it's, oh, well, that's a thing worth investing in because no matter if, you know, this lasts forever or it lasts for a short time, we'll still end up having learned this new thing or, you know, been able to scale down, scale up or whatever it might be. And, th and that's why I think scenarios are kind of interesting and, and I guess brings me back to reopening in the sense that reopening just is such an absolutist kind of, it, it contains within it, I think such an absolutist way of thinking and such a before and after kind of thing. Whereas if we think about something like the scenario planning, you have multiple futures that you're engaged with. You have multiple situations that you're preparing for. And in the same turn, I think about our example of the grocery stores where they have a before and after and the window is like minuscule, right? Like it's not even something that we give a new title for. It's that they closed one night, they added shields and some PPE and they uh, changed their cleaning regimen. And the next day they opened almost identically to how they were the day before, you know, and yet they're serving thousands of people and they continue to, to deliver on their, their business proposition because they continue to sell food. It's interesting that you mentioned grocery stores because <laughs> we, we just, it just so happens that's going to be coming up in our workshop. 
Yes, um, it is. Yeah, That's so maybe we'll, <laughs> rather than try to shoe that, shoehorn that in here. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was fun, Kyle. I hope that, you know, I didn't spend too much time overanalyzing one word. <laughs> but sometimes it can be, it can be fun to do these little brain, brain yeah. dumps. Well, so and I learned that I, I can't fit more than two parts of a grid in my brain at one time. So we're going to need to prepare for that in future conversations. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Good talking with you, Isabella. You too. Bye. Take care.